0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Thanks for tuning in to our weekly podcast. Um, as usual, there's a lot to talk about Australia suddenly uh, getting a bit more recognition for its renewable energy investment, some more news on the solar front on the network side, some interesting developments on the regulatory side, and one Kangaroo Island, and some pushing towards a different solutions for our energy crisis, if that's what it's called. Joining me to discuss all of this is David Leach as usual. How are you, David?
1: Very well, thanks, Charles, and good uh, good day to all our our listeners.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, look, we'll start off with the EY Country renewable or Renewable Energy Country Attractiveness uh, um, Survey, which was released this week. Australia's back up to number five, which sounds very good. Uh, leading the pack is China and India. The US used to do it, but jumped down a couple of spots because of. Uh, the election of Donald Trump and his ambition to revive the coal industry, but Australia's jumped up from number 11 to number five, thanks to this sort of huge rush of investment that we've seen over the last six months and commitments for large-scale solar and particularly, but also large-scale wind farms and the continued investment in rooftop solar. Look, I guess that's good news. Um, I guess my question to you, David, is should we ever have fallen out of the top 10? And how long can we stay in the top 10 given that we've actually apart from this big rush of investment we've got now and may continue for another six months we um haven't got much to point the way forward
1: well we've got a lot of investment going on at the moment and i understand that everyone who develops a project wants to get a return on it and so you've got to stop when you get a lot of new supply it only makes sense to sit back for a little bit and uh, re-evaluate uh, whether how much more is actually going to be needed that's point one. Uh, point two, regarding our international competitiveness i mean you can talk about china all you like but as as we know they've got fantastic problems actually getting their renewable generation connected to the transmission system it's, it gets built and then doesn't get used and uh you know i think australia can be very proud of its rooftop solar uh, side of things. And, and I hope we can uh, keep developing that a lot more over the next couple of years and extend it into the commercial space. But as far as the uh, kind of trinity of things, of uh, price, uh, sustainability and reliability, Australia is still not ranking very well on that. On, and I, I regard that as a more uh, rounded metric of, of how electr- Australia's electricity system is performing in the global stage.
0: Indeed, and we'll see, um, we will of course see how some of that emerges um, very soon, um, particularly with the Finkel review um, due in about three weeks, I understand. So um, that's going to be interesting, and hopefully that puts us on the road to um, some sort of coordinated policy, which has been sadly lacking.
1: Charles, did you see he's talking about on the road that uh, the CEO of Arena uh, was actually on the road with Josh Frydenberg on an overseas tour recently? I mean, I have to see that as a positive sign.
0: Yes, they did. They went to see this. um, They went to Israel. I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. So, um, look, hopefully, uh, hopefully they would have convinced each other. Although I do notice that George Frydenberg visited a solar plant which wasn't yet complete in Israel and um, a carbon capture and storage plant which was complete but wasn't doing very much in the US. So um, I'm not too sure whether that's the shape of things to come. Um, on the subject of solar arena, we're very pleased to announce this week that um, all 12 of their plants uh, that they have um, given grants to and basically kicked off this big boom in large scale solar have reached financial close. That's with the Um, what's it called, the White Rock um, solar plant um, up in Barnaby Joyce's electorate and um, I guess there was no surprise that that reached financial close because it is being built by Goldwyn, one of the biggest renewable energy companies in the world.
1: My old home area, uh, New England, I grew up in Armidale and it's pretty windy up there, I can tell you, um, and uh, plenty of sun, I guess, as well. Look, uh, it's great that ARENA's kick-started that off, but uh, in fact, the amount of solar they've they've, uh, sort of responsible for for is actually uh, starting to pale into insignificance compared with the total amount that's actually been built, uh, which as we know is uh, pushing up around, I mean, there's nearly 900 megawatts in Queensland alone.
0: Absolutely, and one of them started construction this week, and this is a really interesting one. Um, It's probably my favourite solar project, if if there can be such a thing. This is by Sun Metals. It's the zinc producer in North Queensland. It's the biggest single user of electricity in the state. Um, And Sun Metals is a zinc refinery owned by the Koreans. They've been really quite progressive. They're behind the push for the five-minute settlement rule. They're building their own 116-megawatt solar farm. Um, Which is which they say will basically underpin the expansion of the zinc refinery in the future And that's going to be a five hundred million dollars investment It's such a wonderful story about a big manufacturer a big refiner building its own solar But Dan if I can find any reference to it in the mainstream media. I thought this would have been a wonderful story
1: Well, I I guess that's right. I I would question whether it's the biggest electricity consumer in the state Um, of course you've got um, uh, the Gladstone aluminium refineries, a very large consumer of electricity, and that's neither here nor there. I guess the difference between uh, sun, um, sun and some a lot of the other metals producers is that sun's actually connected to the grid. Um, another area where Solar uh, was making great inroads until the oil price fell was in the off-grid area, where you can replace these reciprocating engines and diesel engines, and I still think there's a tremendous uh, opportunity uh, to do that in West Australia, in Queensland and in Northern Territory uh, going forward.
0: Yeah, look, I'm at, a re- at the recent solar conference. In fact, i got to talk to a couple of the solar developers, and um, and they're quite enthusiastic about that now. Um, they've been talking about this for years, but it seems that the miners are finally coming round. And I guess that's in part due to the experience of Rio up in North Queensland, off the grid at Weeper. They've put in six megawatts or seven megawatts of solar. At um, De degress at the c- copper mine there. They've got 10 me- megawatts of solar with some battery storage. So we're starting to see these things being put in. They've both been done with arena funding, but I guess the mining industry just wanted to see that these things actually do work and don't stop the um, the mine-, mine processing plants.
1: Even, I mean, Carnegie Wave Energy is supposed to be all about wave energy, <laughs> but I, I think it's actually off-grid uh, solar and battery pieces are some of the more interesting pieces of that little company.
0: Well, in, indeed. In fact, they have actually had a change of name to Carnegie Clean Energy now. So I think um, I don't think they'll be. I think they'll be making more money out of solar and storage than they will be out of wave energy in the in the near future. In fact, they're, they're actually going to build a 10 megawatt solar farm near Northern, um, as one of their first big commercial projects. Let's go the other side of the industry over to networks. Now, Oznet um, had their results this week. Um, I wrote a very quick story with a very pretty picture about how they see the Victorian grid being transformed with lots of wind and solar farms around the place, but you actually had a bit of a more in-depth listen to what they were talking about. What can you tell us?
1: Well, I think all the networks are very interesting, Giles, and I don't want to uh, bore our readers with a lot of figures, but I'm, I'm just going to read out some numbers here and ask you what you think of them. So if we look at their electricity distribution business over the past 10 years, so between 2000 and 2017, the total volume has grown 3%. The total number of customers have grown 20%. The asset brace has grown 150%. And the EBITDA has gone up 90%. So the volume per connection has gone down by about 14%. That's industrial and commercial as well as household over 10 years. Uh, So that's great for energy efficiency and demand management, etc. But it's costing customers an awful lot more to get their electricity because the asset base has gone up so much. And yet at the same time, actually, Osnet themselves haven't done that incredibly well out of it because they've had to take on a huge amount of extra debt uh to get there and the dividend growth in the company's actually been very slow and although um, it's more exaggerated in electricity you see the same thing going on in gas distribution where volumes over the past 10 years in in their franchise have gone down eight percent even though customers are up 30 percent and and their asset base has only grown 60 percent so if we look at the electricity distribution i guess it's the metering business that they've put in there the ami metering which was terribly expensive in victoria that's partly responsible for this cost blowout And I guess there's, uh, like all the networks, the question is, you can't keep growing this asset base um, uh, when the volumes are declining. And that's why we're seeing a gradual tightening of the screw as the networks have to look uh, at a way forward, which is going to be a change in pricing mechanism. The The debate over how networks charge for their services is not going to go away. Uh, Well,
0: it's going to be absolutely crucial because what we're talking about here is the cost of transporting electricity. And if it is so expensive with the networks, then how are they going to cope with the new form of transport, which is basically through battery storage and localiser, mini grids and things like that? And have they actually built up too much of a big expensive base, which will be which will find itself not so much redundant, but um, priced out of the market.
1: So, Charles, I'm starting to think that for new houses and stuff like that, you know, the cost of being connected to the grid should be included as a once-off cost in the price of the house. Uh, and after that, basically, uh, your cost of being getting electricity and s- sending it and receiving it should be very, very small.
0: Where well, it should be, because we've got this ridiculous thing at the moment, whereas if you are building a new house or even a new suburb or a new factory, um, you get to pay for the connection, and then you're invited to pay rent for it for the rest of your life. Um, so <laughs> that's been, that's been a, a bit of a bizarre mechanism, and that's why a lot of these new suburban developments are looking quite seriously at not actually connecting to the grid in the first place, or if they do, having a very small connection, because they're looking at the possibility with the fall in costs of storage and, and what have you and this new microgrid technology and this um, smart software while well, actually looking after their own power so um, that's an interesting one but maybe I, it's a maybe I, what, Charles,
1: that, I, I do hope this uh, we keep talking about the falling cost of storage I hope it keeps falling that's all I can say
0: well yes indeed indeed look it's been a while since our last report so um, yes indeed hey look um, on the networks um, it was interesting little uh, an interesting little case has emerged in Kangaroo Island and now this is this sort of iconic tourist resort iconic sorry tourist resort or tourist island off south australia and i really would love to go there have you been there
1: i haven't but my brother had his honeymoon there oh
0: lovely well look it's quite a big island it's got quite a bit of a lot of demand they've got an old cable that connects to the mainland it's about near the end of their life so they thought about well let's build a new cable to the island and some other people popped up and said well look maybe there's some alternatives so the south australia power networks actually looked at those alternatives um They sort of said, no, we don't like this idea of going 100% renewable energy or having a microgrid or whatever. Um, We would prefer to replace the line like for like, have a 33 kilovolt kV line. The island people actually wanted to have a 66 kV line, and the reason for that was that they thought that maybe they could export renewable energy back into the mainland. All that by the by, it was interesting because the Kangaroo Island Commission and the council took SAPN and appealed against its um, the decision. It was the first time it's actually been appealed against the regulatory investment test. Now,
1: they actually is, lost- is that some, Do you call that a kangaroo
0: court? A kangaroo court, it could well be. Well, they might be thinking it is actually because um, while the AER, the Australian Energy Regulator, gave SAPN a bit of a, a whack around the chops over some of its decision making and the way it sort of justified its decision, it chose not to reverse it, but what it did say was that the way these um, investment, these regulatory investment tests are made? Do not take into they're very narrow. They don't take into account other benefits such as jobs, local jobs growth, uh, the cost of fuels in the future, uh, environmental benefits, and what have you. And it was interesting to see the AER actually coming out and sort of saying, well, maybe we do need to change the rules. And this is quite important because there's an awful lot of networks around Australia which are looking at edge of grid investments and upgrades. And they, I guess what we do need is to have maximum flexibility so they can actually look at the alternatives rather than simply just building new cables and more poles and wires.
1: Well, well, I'd agree with that. I had a read of the AER report, and I, I'm not going to criticise South Australian Power Networks. They followed the rules. The AER followed the rules. I, I will say that it wasn't just going to be an extra couple of million dollars for that 66-volt cable. It was going to be a lot of other extra work if they ever got round to using it, extra network augmentation. So look, without um, I I don't think it's for me certainly to (laughs) get in the way of that dispute. I I do agree with you very much, Giles. That uh, we're going to have to have a much more forward-thinking set of rules. And you've uh, we've both banged on about um, uh, positive externalities and societal benefits uh, from moving to distributed energy not being properly captured in the pricing or returns process, or planning, let alone the planning processes. And so I, I, I certainly hope we can make some progress on that over the next couple of years.
0: Well, look, there is actually one other thing to report there, um, and there is a bit of movement. Um, AEMO, um, the Australian energy market operator now headed by Audrey Zibelman, and ARENA have gotten together to announce a big initiative in demand response. Now, they plan to get 100 megawatts of demand response into the grid, the Victorian grid, by next summer. Now, that could actually be quite crucial because Victoria's lost Hazelwood. There is some question about whether it's got enough electricity, enough power to meet supply. So, for once, we're actually thinking about smarter ways of doing things, looking at the demand side of the equation rather than just simply trying to shovel more generation um, down the pipes. Um, that seems to me to be a step forward.
1: Well, of course, that's right. <laughs> of course, uh, there's so many factories closing in Victoria. Uh, demand management's kind of happening by default, which is... Uh, kind of... <laughs> I'm not too sure that's the way it's supposed to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I that's a fairly permanent demand reduction as opposed to the sort of uh, intermittent reduction that uh, this kind of pro- program contemplates. I, uh, we're all in favour of demand management giles and offering that option to customers. And we talked last week about how network tariffs for households and generator tariffs could be coordinated uh, in a way that would incentivize batteries. Uh, and offer customers a lot more choice, and I, I certainly think that's a way forward. That said, uh, I think if we do um, uh, electricity right in this country, we won't need that much demand management. You know, we, there's plenty of wind, plenty of solar. Uh, we, we, Everyone should be able to have as much electricity as they want. Cheap, plentiful energy uh, is, is a wonderful way to make the wheels go round if it's not... Um, if it's not uh, carbon emitting. Yeah, that's right. But
0: I guess the demand management and energy efficiency is a way to actually deal with those critical peaks and things like that. And one of the things we have seen is that when... It does get hot and and it's these big heat waves where we're seeing these sort of record demands and these sort of, you know, these instances where, you know, we're almost about to lose power. We're having to have load shedding. And what we've seen repeatedly over the summer is the coal and the gas plants actually sort of falling off because they've got valve problems or the temperature in the lake next door is too hot or they've got all sorts of issues. And uh, we're losing about 1,000 megawatts of capacity as we did in Queensland, I think, on on February the 12th and 2,000 megawatts in New South Wales. Um, there's actually serious issues um, about the fossil fuel generation, and this is going to be quite critical over the next few years until we actually get that extra wind and solar. And it's going to be, well, it's going to be very political, and um, I'm, I'm sure that renewables will get the blame, um, even if it's the fossil fuel plants falling over.
1: Well, we've always had problems with heat in summer. Uh, transmission lines actually sag in summer because you get this higher demand and the plant doesn't work as well. That's true for coal plant. It's true for gas plant. It's true for transmission. But of course, it's also true for solar. Solar panels uh, derate themselves when they get very hot. Uh, and and I don't know about wind, but um, <laughs> I don't like working. It's very hot myself. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, Uh, Equipment uh, doesn't always work the way it's advertised to, Giles, and that's why we need lots and lots of redundancy, lots and lots of uh, demand management, but also microgrids. And, you know, if we've got household storage and all that and and business storage where where we can island individual streets and and build in a lot more uh, network resilience uh, uh, rather than be dependent on just a few centralised generators and a few centralised transmission. In the end, uh, the fuel and the carbon emissions is one part of it, but the network intelligence uh, the network uh, redundancy uh, is also a very a big part of it. Absolutely. Look, let's look towards next week. Look, my understanding is
0: that AIMA is going to come out, oh, look, I'm not too sure if it's actually next week or the, next, or the week after with an updated, um, what they call their technical statement of opportunities. But it's going to be interesting to see what they talk about, whether we've got enough, whether, whether we think they think that we've got enough generation in the market to deal with the summer heat wave. Um, it'd be interesting to see what they say in light of all these new wind and solar plants coming on board, and also a bit of a reappraisal of the gas market, I understand, may also be in the pipeline, and, and that's probably just as well, because we had the um, Climate and Energy College come out today with a big report saying, shortfall of gas, what shortfall? And uh, Wood Mackenzie at um, at the APIA conference in Perth this week saying, well, look, the issue is with coal seam gas is that it's actually not a cheap source of gas. Um, so even if you can't open it all up, it's not actually going to lower the price. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what we um, see developing in the gas market.
1: Reliability is one thing and having enough supply and price is another. Um, price is likely to remain high for gas. And if the price is high enough, there will be enough supply. There's still gas reserves sitting around the place that can be developed fairly quickly. Uh, enough to keep us going for a couple of years. As far as AEMO's planning statements, with the best will in the world, AEMO's forecasts have not been hugely reliable in the past five or six years. They've done an enormous amount of work to try and improve their process to make the forecasting better. But Giles, forecasting is a mugs game. You and I could have been sitting here... You've made a career out of it. I have. And uh, (laughs) and there's a lot of mugs out. I, I wouldn't say that. People want forecasts and we need forecasts and we all use forecasts but when you make them uh, you ask any professional forecaster what they really think of their forecasts and it's one thing to say the sun's coming up tomorrow and it's another thing to forecast what the electricity price is going to be in a year's time. We all sat here last February or we could have been sitting here none of us predicted today's power prices and it's likely we can't predict uh, you know uh, predicting the future is just very, very tough and you shouldn't, uh, no matter how expert the guy sounds, his, his, his statistics show that forecasting prices in dynamic markets is, is, very, is virtually impossible on a, on a reliable basis.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Okay, David, look, I think we're going to wrap up there and um, we'll be back together next week to find out what happened in the immediate future and see whether our predictions for next week were right at least. Um, anyway, good to talk once again, David. Thanks very much.
1: Thanks, Charles, and I look forward to another exciting week in the electricity markets.
0: Indeed. And thanks for listening. Bye-bye.